Hello and welcome once again to the Along the Trail podcast. I'm your host, Neil Halford. Last time, we had a brief chat about my Native American heritage, my connections to Stillwell, Oklahoma, self-proclaimed strawberry capital of the world, and how those three things are linked together through Cherokee cosmology. This time, partially in celebration of my wife's birthday today, we're going to go a little further afield, up to Canada, in fact, to discuss Jaina's indigenous connections and how that heritage impacted various members of her family. When Jaina and I first met, I was intrigued to discover that she was only a second-generation American. Her father's people had come through Ellis Island in the early 1900s from Ukraine, fleeing the political upheavals in Eastern Europe to make a new life in the coal country of West Virginia. Her mother's side of the family was based in Canada, but her mother was born in Ohio while Jaina's grandfather helped construct Cleveland's landmark terminal tower. At first blush, it seemed that Jaina's family story was very much the story of immigrants without much connection to the people who met the Anglo-Irish half of my ancestors getting off the boat in the 1600s. But the more that we talked, I learned that her border-hopping Canadian ancestors were actually from a First Nations reservation near Montreal called Ganawagi and that her mother was considered a full-blood Mohawk Indian of the Turtle Clan. My blonde, blue-eyed wife, who looked like she should be starring in an Eastern Bloc spy thriller, was technically, at least on paper, even more Native American than I was. Say gone. In Canada, my mother's people group is referred to as a First Nations group. In the U.S., we say Native American, and some Natives live on reservations. And in Canada, many of them are called First Nations people, and some live on reserves. I am very proud of my First Nations Native North American heritage. I'm very aware that because I don't look stereotypically Native, my experience of life is not going to be the same as someone who does. And because I didn't grow up on a reserve, I've had a different life experience than those that did grow up on the traditional land. But I am very proud of my background, and I get newsletters several times a week by email of what's happening on the reserve and stay in touch with family there, and I look forward to going back. And an interesting thing, because of this research I'm doing now, because of my academic work studying this group and writing about their beautiful visual culture, it's caused me to out myself. Because previously, I only spoke about the heritage among family or other people that had similar connections. Like the sight of someone who looks like me, who is light-skinned and has blue eyes, is not unusual on the reserve. although. Things are going to be getting more native-looking over time because stricter rules were set for who can live on the reserve and how native parentage is counted. To be full blood, you need four native grandparents in my group. I have two, so my mother was full blood, but I am, I having an Eastern European father, am half. But I do think it's good that each native nation or tribal community has the right to make their own rules about that. 
There's advantages and disadvantages. If you make it wider acceptance, then you can have more people in. If it's narrower, then you are having concentrated Indian blood. So it's been an interesting experience to find myself having to out myself a little bit. I've often felt because there have been some high-profile cases of people misrepresenting themselves, I didn't want to be perceived as a pretendian or someone with very distant ancestry. But I've also realized it's okay to claim this and to enjoy it and be proud of it. And like so many people in the world, I am a mixture of backgrounds. Jaina and I's early perceptions of indigenous reservations were quite different. Growing up in Oklahoma, I lived in what's essentially one big reservation. Subdivided into dozens of different tribal authorities prior to statehood, there's very little land in the state that isn't technically part of somebody's reserve. Driving along any stretch of highway there, you can spot roadside markers indicating whose territory you've just entered or exited. But aside from driving into one of the big cities, it all looks like small town anywhere. The only signs of nativeness that you're likely to see is you might have a bit of trouble saying the town names if you haven't grown up there. I can't say that I ever really experienced what a reservation was as something that felt truly separate from the lands around it until I accidentally drove onto Navajo lands while exploring the back roads of Arizona. In August of 2021, just days after Canada lifted its travel restrictions because of COVID, Jaina and I and her sister Mary took a trip up to Ganawagi so that Jaina could visit her grandmother's reserve for the first time, and also so that she could expand her knowledge of the art being produced by her fellow Ganigahaga. I always heard about Ganawagi, or as I mentioned, as it used to be called, as it was called for many years, Kagnawaga. I always heard about it from my mother. She remembered being taken there as a very small girl to get her Indian name, which meant she who gathers flowers or she who picks flowers. Ganawagi is not a huge community. There's maybe 8,000 people there, and most streets are not marked with a street name. Uh, most people just know where other people live. So addresses tend to be postal boxes rather than street numbers. So when we first arrived at the reserve with my sister, she was wanting to connect with our cousin Sean, but she didn't know where he lived. And so we asked at the visitor's center if the young lady working there knew where Sean lived. And she said, oh, we'll just go down to the, my emphasis, the gas station, and they can tell you that. They'll know where he is. We stopped in an arts and crafts store called Traditions, and the young woman that runs it, who reminds me a great deal of one of my cousins, knew Sean because she had a brother that her brother and Sean were part of a group of guys that hung out together a lot when they were younger. So she, she described where he was living, and my sister recognized the house as where his grandmother, our, our Aunt Margie, had lived, and she had visited Margie years ago, so my sister was able to get us to the house that was actually pretty close by, and uh, Sean was very gracious, and it was wonderful to meet with him. Um, something that was really nice is that he shared berries from his garden with us, and in Haudenosaunee or Iroquois cosmology, berries are gifts from the Creator, 
And so that was, that was a lovely thing to share. A few days later, Jane and I returned to the reserve with the aim of visiting the graves of her relatives. Along the way, we decided to stop in briefly for a tour of the cultural center, which is housed at a repurposed elementary school. It's only a few minutes until closing time, but Leanne McComber is kind enough to let us in for a look at a few exhibits which could be helpful for Jane's research. She also takes the time to pronounce the native names for important places on the map. Now this is the word for Mohawk? Yeah. And how is that pronounced? Kanyankehaga. Kanyankehaga. Okay, thank you. And then um, those words, those were... This is Agwazasne. That's the sister reserve, isn't it? Yeah, and this one is Ganesadagi. We're fortunate that we took the time to stop in when we did. Since the time of our visit, the cultural center has been demolished, but will soon be housed in a nicer, purpose-built facility to help preserve the history and the culture of the Haudenosaunee people. The trip to the graveyard from the cultural center is less than three minutes away, and we have the place all to ourselves. It meant a lot to me to visit the graveyard at the reserve. The first day we were there with my sister, she showed us the area where our grandmother is buried and the ashes of a couple of our uncles, my couple of my grandmother's sons, were also scattered on that grave, so there was a marker for one of them as well there. And when I went back with Neil, I was able to find nearby the headstone for my Aunt Alice, my mom's eldest sister, and her husband, my Uncle Joe, it meant a great deal to me to go back after that first visit um, and place flowers on the, the grave of my grandmother and my Aunt Alice and Uncle Joe. There were other headstones with names I recognized as family names. My mother's maiden name was French, and there were a number of Frenches not too far from where my grandmother is and aunt are buried. In a documentary that I saw about ironworkers from Ganawagi, I was very moved to see that there was, I believe, more than one large cross made from steel girders. And I found out later that those were a memorial to a major construction disaster when the Quebec Bridge was being built. Seventy-six men died when the bridge they were building suddenly just fell apart and collapsed into the St. Lawrence River. So 76 men died that day, and 33 of them were from Ganawagi. So in a small community, that's a lot of men. That was uh, about four families had the family name completely wiped out from that incident. So that was when the women of the community asserted themselves and said, going forward, the men were not to all work on the same project. They needed to split up more and work in smaller groups so that if there were another major disaster like then, they would not have as many losses. Obviously, ironwork was dangerous and is dangerous by nature. In fact, that's how my mother's father died from a high-level fall in Cleveland while building the terminal tower. And even though she was only four years old, my mother remembered her oldest brother, Al, who worked with her father, coming home, closing the door, I believe it was the kitchen door behind him, and leaning on it, looking quite ashen, before he went and told his mother that there had been this terrible accident at work that day. At the time of our visit, 
the infamy of Canada's Indian schools filled the news. Mass graves had recently been excavated at several former institutions, and everywhere there were somber outpourings of sorrow and rage against the atrocities committed against Canada's native children. Outside the St. Francis Church on the Ganawagi Reserve, hundreds of children's shoes had been laid out to remember those who had been lost or harmed in these terrible instruments of cultural genocide. Jaina's grandmother Bianca had been among the many Haudenosaunee who had been punished for the simple crime of having been born native. I grew up hearing how my grandmother, my mother's mother, had had a very harrowing time in one of the infamous Indian residential schools. Now, Ganawaki was actually founded as a place for natives that had converted to Catholicism to live where they wouldn't face prejudice either from their own people groups or from the French Catholics that were settling that part of the country of Canada. So some people from the reserve did go to the Mohawk Institute that was in another province. That was a deliberate thing that you'll find in residential schools all over North America. They would typically have the school some distance from where the children that were in it were taken from to make it harder for them to run away to go home or for the family to come by and try to see their children. So there was deliberate distance. And what happened to my grandmother and her brother when they were children was their mother was a widow, and when she remarried, she married a man that didn't want the children from the previous marriage around. That definitely points to the breakdown of the influence of the clan mothers, because traditionally the clan mothers would have stood up and objected to children being separated from their mother. But a lot of the social order in which traditionally women had a lot of influence and say, and indeed were honored as keepers of the culture, a lot of that had broken down under the more patriarchal influences that were brought in with settler colonialism. So my grandmother and her brother were packed off to this school where conditions were abysmal, Hygienically, it was very dangerous. There was raw sewage literally coming up through floorboards. My grandmother recalled having to work in the kitchen, which the staff would not enter themselves, literally standing in sewage on the floor. And so children got sick. Her brother, Homer, had delicate health. He was badly weakened from repeated bouts of what was called erysipelas. It was a disease that was um, thriving in those horrible conditions. My grandmother was beaten for speaking the language, her native language, but she didn't forget it. She proudly spoke and wrote English, French, and the Mohawk language all her life. Although I should say that at the time that she lived, there was no formalized written language, so she would have been phonetically transliterating, but people used to hire her to translate things because she was good at all three languages. She survived the residential school and had many children, but her brother did not survive. Obviously, the trauma of living through these horrible residential schools left intergenerational trauma. It was an unfortunate lasting legacy in so many families. In watching Jaina process the reality of what her grandmother had gone through in the Indian residential schools, I at long last began to better understand 
my own grandmother's reticence to teach me Cherokee or share her own stories about our indigenous heritage. Without question, she had experienced some of the same horrors and indignities, and hadn't wished to pass on her memories of what had been done to her and to our kin. Despite the best efforts of the French and English colonizers to wipe out the culture of the indigenous populations, their native strength has endured. Important lessons have been passed down through generations, passing from grandmother to mother to daughter, and Jane accredits her ancestors for much of the mental resilience that's enabled her to survive the many challenges that have been thrown into her life. Now that I'm an adult and have had a chance to study the culture, there were many things my mother did and said that were very, very much from her native culture. And I just thought that that was her particular attitude or, you know, just her own personal outlook. As my siblings and I got older into high school and college age, when academic demands are getting tougher and, you know, first jobs, initial jobs are being tried for, she would always tell us if we um, were apprehensive before, say, um, an exam or a job interview, that it was perfectly normal to feel nervous or apprehensive before something like that because it was important, but that we could use any fear we were feeling to try to be careful, to avoid mistakes, to remind ourselves to stay on track. And again, I just thought that was her personal philosophy. And then when I was much younger, for a couple of years, I lived on the East Coast. And one night while watching television, a documentary came on about iron workers from my mom's reserve. And I was very interested because I knew her father, my grandfather, had been a Mohawk iron worker. And here were these men doing iron work, and it showed them traveling back to Ganawagi. And while they were talking about their work, one of the men said that it was a common misconception that Mohawks were fearless, that they did the ironwork because they had no fear of being up on high steel girders well above the ground. And I'm certain they gave that impression because they didn't look afraid. But he was saying the notion that they did not have fear in that situation was completely wrong. In fact, he said anyone would be a fool not to be afraid under those conditions. And then he said something that I never forgot. He said something to the effect of the Mohawk knows how to use the fear to be careful and avoid making mistakes. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's my mother's philosophy. And I know I ended up calling her probably, you know, the next opportunity I had to tell her about that. And I talked about it with my siblings. And as I've learned more and more about that particular aspect of my heritage, the more I've come to realize that a lot of what I was raised on did, in fact, come from the Mohawk or the larger Iroquois or Haudenosaunee philosophy. Mohawk resistance against cultural assimilation has become legendary, so much so that members of other indigenous tribes frequently fly the Mohawk flag as a de facto symbol of defiance against colonialism. The Haudenosaunee culture will survive, thanks in no small part to the determination and dedication of people like Jaina who are striving to preserve their art, language, and culture for the benefit of generations yet to be born.
I hope you've enjoyed this brief excursion to Ganawagi with us and learned a little something about its history and importance. Until next time, I wish you happy traveling until we meet again somewhere along the trail.